Welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. Hey everyone, so I have an interview to put out today that I am so excited to share with this community. I've talked before on this podcast about attending the PWS Behavior Management Conference facilitated by Lisa Graziano and put on by Prada Willie California Foundation. I've spoken about some of the things that I learned and how I have successfully implemented some of the strategies. I typed up 10, 12 pages of notes from the conference and handed them to the teachers at school and have shared the information with friends who spend time with Freya. I mean, I learned some very effective and sometimes simple ways to help Freya be in the world. Lisa was gracious enough to make her first podcast appearance here on Walking with Freya in this last PWS Awareness Month episode to share some of these tools and understandings with us. There was too much to fit into this hour and plus interview, but some key elements to Prader-Willi syndrome and ways to manage the behavior are here. And I hope to have Lisa on another time to go deeper into some of the aspects of PWS behavior. But for now, in this episode, we get to hear about anxiety and oppositional thinking, two things that are very prevalent with PWS. We talk about what fairness actually looks like and the issues that come up between siblings how perseveration and repeated questions are often linked to anxiety but can also be a sign of nonverbal learning disorder. Talk about how structure and routine, especially in the early years, can produce kids that are better able to be flexible in life and how this is the first step to reducing anxiety. Lisa then walks us through a scenario of a build-up to a temper tantrum and how we can implement empathy in the moment to let our kids know that we understand their feelings and to hopefully get them thinking. And then we talk about the sometimes inevitable meltdown when empathy and other strategies have not been successful and our kids have a complete loss of ability to control their behavior, an unfortunate symptom of this syndrome. So check out the show notes for a link to a handy quick guide from pwcf.org about behavior and definitely check out their website for tons of information and resources. You can find dates for future conferences like September 15th in San Francisco. There will be another PWS Behavior Management Conference. You can also enroll as a member or you can donate to help continue the incredible support that Prada Willie California Foundation offers. A few things before we get into the interview. One, I am facilitating my first writing workshop for parents and caregivers of children with special needs this Thursday. And I should include siblings in the title because I know that a sibling will be there, which I think is awesome. 
but I will say that I think siblings often fall under the uh, label of caregiver as well. But I'm really looking forward to this opportunity, and I hope to expand someday to be offer to be able to offer this to more people, to to broader communities. Uh, you know, for me, writing has always been such powerful medicine, especially on this journey. And I love to share the experience and hopefully some useful and inspiring techniques for others. The final edit of my writing journal is still underway, and you all will be the first to know when it is available. Two, if you are new to the podcast, and first I will say thank you for being here, and I hope that you find good company amongst us. This podcast is a labor of love, as they say, free to the community, and it's hours of of work on my end, researching, recording, editing, producing, and a good way to help support this endeavor is to tell a friend about this podcast. Go into iTunes or wherever you listen and leave a review and a rating, or simply send me an email at walkingwithfreya at gmail.com, or you can follow at walkingwithfreya on Instagram, and let me know that you're listening. I will be honest and say that I have some days where I feel run down or, or insecure or unmotivated, and I wonder if anyone is listening at all, if this work is doing anything in the world, and then I'll get an email or a message on Facebook or Instagram from a parent who has found the podcast and a community, someone who needed to hear that they are not the only one with these struggles and challenges in their life. Someone who feels connected again because of the stories that these families share on the podcast. And I get these emails or these, these messages and then I am rejuvenated and re-inspired to continue this work. I had someone ask me once how long I planned on doing this podcast and I said, I'm here for the long haul. These stories, every interview, every connection, every resource... They all excite me and motivate me, and I am grateful to have this space to share with the broader community. So I'm here as long as y'all will have me. (laughs) It sounds really cheesy. (laughs) So moving on. You can also check out my website, annefricke.com, A-N-N-E-F-R-I-C-K-E.com, to find these episodes Uh, There's also a link to my blog about uh, growing up with PWS, and those first six years or so um, are really what's in the blog. Let's face it, podcasting is kind of the new blogging, or at least for me it is. So I haven't written in it too recently, but there are some really good posts, though, for uh, those of you who are new on this journey. You know, the typical posts about acceptance and the grieving process, peers and starting school and all that. And I will get back to that someday, but for now, uh, the focus has been on the podcasting. If you check out my website, you'll also find uh, some of my poetry, some of my short fiction, and the first chapter of my novel, The Orchard's Descendant, with a follow-up link to buy it if you are interested. And that is a shameless plug right there, which I don't often throw out, but it is another inadvertent way to support the podcast. Now, as I mentioned before, this is the last of the PWS Awareness Month episodes for this year. 
I am so incredibly grateful to the PWS community, to the organizations, to the families who are on Facebook, who are out there promoting, getting money for research, who are actively and thoroughly doing everything they can to make life better for all of us families dealing with PWS. So thank you to all of you. And I'm uh, grateful. I'm very grateful that you guys are all out there. So I will cease my ramblings and I will give the floor to Lisa. I hope that you all get as much out of this conversation as I have. Someday I'll share the story of my birthday this past weekend and how I just rapidly dissolved a an escalating situation with the empathy phrases that uh, Lisa talks about. So thank you all for being here. Okay. All right. Well, Lisa, hi. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And hi, and thank you very much for having me. This is fun. Yeah, good. So can we just start with your entry into the Prada Willie community? Just yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My son was, um, was born um, 20 years ago and diagnosed very shortly after birth. Um, by day 13, we had a definitive uh, genetic testing for Prader-Willi syndrome. And so we kind of jumped in almost in the deep end from the very, very beginning. Um, my very first um, real connection with any organization was the National Prader-Willi Syndrome Association. Um, when when um, my family, when Cameron was six months old, all piled together and went to their first conference, which actually happened to be a joint conference with the state's Prader-Willi California Foundation. Um, and then it was after, after that meeting that um, I was um, asked to fill somebody's seat on the board of directors at the national organization. And then a couple of years after that, um, I was ready to join a support group. It, so I just kind of like did everything backwards. Um, sat on the board for a while, and, and then I was ready to join a support group. And I called the then executive director of the Prader-Willi California Foundation, Fran Moss, and said, okay, Fran, I've stopped crying. I'm ready to join a support group. And she said, that's great, Lisa. The closest one is about uh, 200 miles away from you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more than that. San Francisco to LA is a little bit more than 200. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so Fran helped um, organize, um, we, we put together the first support group meeting in, um, in the South Bay, and that was um, 18 years ago, and it's still, still meeting and, and still going strong and helping to support families today. Nice. Yeah, wow, to be asked to be on the board right from the start, I mean, that, like you said, you yeah. kind of did it backwards. So I did it backwards, and I don't under. I still don't know how that came to be, but um, but very grateful to have had that opportunity, which um, was really the start of working within the organization and with Prado Wood California Foundation and in the administrative ends of that as well. 
so was that kind of like a, a crash course then in into uh in Prader Willy or I mean was that more of just like you said more administrative stuff no it was a crash course into Prader Willy syndrome because um um I was really soaking in everything I think I think what they wanted was somebody who who was young who could what I mean relatively young at that time who could represent I think infants and children's needs so I really focused on what is it that we as young parents need that um, at that time Prader-Willi Syndrome Association could be doing more of or better and I think that was I think that was really why I was kind of um, targeted to fill that niche at that time yeah and so that's why i really started focusing on um uh, and now that time you know with, with this syndrome that you know when your child is only one year old two years old you don't really have any of the behavioral issues going on at all just other you know medical symptoms and lots and lots and lots of worry about what the future is going to be uh-huh and it but it wasn't until I think I, I um, served as the Prader-Willi California Foundation's director that I jumped in headfirst on the behavioral pieces, the support pieces, you know, the people pieces in, a different, in, a, in addition to the administrative pieces. Right. Yeah, your name came up in an interview with Jessica because uh, you were her mentor family. Which yeah. after she got her diagnosis. So what does that look like? How do you, what do you do as a mentor family? Because I never had one. Oh, well, if you wanted one or could have used somebody who had kind of walked the walk before you and given you that support, I'm awfully sorry you didn't get it. Um, oh, that's okay. Well, that's, like I said, one of the things of living way up here, I think is maybe <laughs> there's nobody. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so um, do you mind talking a bit about what that is like? What do you do as a mentor family? No, no, not at all. So that's, it, it's, it's actually, I think, one of the most important things that parents can do for another parent. Um, and, and literally, it, it, is, it is reaching out, calling on the phone, um, sometimes connecting by internet after, after phone contact. But it, it's kind of the support from one parent to another, one mom to another mom, or one mom to another dad, or you know, um, how, whatever the, the the mentor relationship is, it's the way that we can feel connected, like we're not alone. That we can feel like, no matter what question we have, it's a really good question to ask. And so, as a mentor parent, we're not necessarily answering all the questions because we don't know their family, we don't know their child, but we are helping them ask the right questions or helping them um, figure out, um, you know, just providing information about what is standard of care and then how do you help that family kind of get that standard of care, if, if whatever they're, they're wanting or needing, but mostly about it's mostly about supporting and uh -huh. providing that um, that that connection that feels close. That feels like, oh, okay. Any anything I can ask, I can ask. Anything that I need an answer to, uh, I won't be alone in this. Yeah. 
Nice. I know. What a beautiful thing to have. You know, I do remember somebody from somebody from PWCF calling me shortly after the diagnosis. And so maybe that was the offering was kind of this mentorship, but um, I didn't, I don't, I don't, there's so many of the details are fuzzy from that time. Yeah. But I do remember talking to a few people on the phone at the time. I, I, that was one of the things that really struck me was after the diagnosis, how, you know, like PWCF and, and I think even PWSA uh, both reached out to us. Like we, you know, we got information, we got a couple of phone calls. And so I think that that is something, and I've said it before, like what a beautiful community to be a part of that there is, you know, these active resources that are so uh, willing to reach out. Yeah. And, and sometimes, it, sometimes the, the, the phone call you get from somebody at one of these organizations, it, no one has ever said um, anything positive about the diagnosis or even said, congratulations on the birth of your baby. <laughs> I, I hear that very, very, very often because I try to be very conscious of the fact that um, when you have a child who's just been diagnosed with a very complex, very rare, very scary um, medical disorder. Um, sometimes you don't feel like it's a congratulatory <laughs> uh, prompting experience, right. but it is. It, it, it is. It's the birth of a baby. Some For most parents, it's the first. Um, and so it's walking that kind of fine line, I think, between really saying congratulations and we're here to support you and and um and then giving room and, and giving lots of space for that person to talk all about the very very often traumatic birth that they've just experienced and may not be able to talk about with anybody else well and some of the things that have some of the sentiments that i come across doing these interviews a lot of times is you know, for those of us, I mean, Freya was three and a half months. Um, and, you know, some, of the, some other people that I've spoken with, you know, when you have this fear that your child is is dying or some of these moms have been, their kids have been misdiagnosed with, um, I don't remember the name of it, but it's something that's fatal. And so when they do get the diagnosis of PWS, they're like, oh, yay, you know, like this is, okay, yes. do this. <laughs> That was my experience. They were looking at testing um, for all sorts of muscular um, degenerative disorders um, when my son was born because he, he actually was born with pretty darn good muscle tone and then he tanked. So they were looking at lots of things. I had that exact experience where I thought our baby was dying. And when we got the diagnosis of Prader-Willi syndrome, the very, and it wasn't fatal, the very first thought was, yay. <laughs> so I, I share that experience. Um, yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, well, and I, and I love that, um, you know, congratulate, just remembering to congratulate people and you have a new being, you have a new baby, there's a new, a new person in your life. And, um, you know, you don't have to go jump right into the challenges that are ahead. That's right. That's right. So, you know, Back then, just uh, 20 years ago, things were very different. You know, we didn't have 
access to some of the medications and any of, I mean, we didn't know a lot about the therapies that would be really helpful. And we didn't have a lot of behavioral help either. And so, you know, fortunately for families now, we have a lot more material and a lot more ability to share it, yeah. right? Podcast. It, we didn't have that 20 years ago. So many people were very alone. Internet was just kind of, you know, just starting. And, um, and so, it makes connection much easier for those families or those parents who want to connect and when they're ready to connect to make it easier to connect. Yeah. That I think is the hardest part is kind of honoring that state of sadness, depression, fear, um, denial in that young parents <laughs> feel. Yep. And, and, and trying to provide support, um, but honor how much information um, does this person really want right now? You know, how often do I keep calling somebody who had at one point said, yes, I'd like a parent mentor, but isn't, isn't quite ready <laughs> to, to really call back? How often do we reach out and continue to try to connect with that person? Or do we respect they're just not ready yet? But then how, how do we know when they might be ready? And then, you know, we're not there to be supportive. It's very, very challenging. Yeah, I bet. Because it's such a delicate time. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's right. Yeah. So how did you get into the behavior stuff? Because you have a background in psychology, right? They yeah, yeah. Um, I have my master's in clinical psychology, and then I'm licensed as a marriage and family therapist. Um, and um, shortly after my uh, son was uh, born and we came home, and my, my husband and my brother-in-law, his brother, were talking, and um, I had been licensed just a couple of years before Cameron was born. And um, it was a long journey to get the master's and, you know, do the internship and, you know, blah. and so my husband was saying to his brother is it's just a shame that um, all of Lisa's work to, um, you know, get her degree and get licensed is now just going to be wasted because, you know, we're, she's, that's just not what she's going to be doing for a while. Or, or who long, knows how long. And my brother-in-law said something that was really very helpful to my husband. He said, you know, everything that she learned in school and during the licensing process will probably be really helpful <laughs> to the <laughs> camera. Um, and, and that, you know, that's very true. Um, but it, it was, um, it, it was really what really threw me into the behavioral pieces was when my son was starting to exhibit some behavioral problems about the age of three, um, which is not uncommon. Usually the twos are pretty good for most babies or kids with the syndrome, but once they hit three, um, there starts to be more temper tantruming and the temper tantrums are a bit qualitatively different than your typical two-year-old or three-year-old temper tantrums. And I went to a conference um, just um, for my own uh, continuing education for my to keep my license up 
on the explosive child. It was uh, presented by a guy named, um, a psychologist named Ross Green. And I sat in that conference listening to um, his talking about in, in very, how to work with and, and parent very impulsive, explosive children. And I was just floored by the overlap of, of um, symptoms that impulsive and explosive kids that he was working with had with children with Prader-Willi syndrome in general. Um, the impulsiveness, the, the compulsiveness, the executive skill function deficits, all of that that lead in and the, you know, the speech and language deficits that lead into some very difficult um, behavior issues. And um, I started incorporating a lot of the strategies that he was kind of teaching at that conference and I was hooked. I said, we're, we're here. And then I would go to other conferences that PWS specialists were giving. Janice Forster, a neuropsychiatrist specializing in Prader-Willi syndrome. Linda Gorosh, a developmental um, pediatrician specializing in Prader-Willi syndrome. Um, and taking all of their um, ideas and theories and then the practicalness of what they were seeing when they were doing all of these, putting them together and said, that, okay, we, we, we got it. We, we've got a plan here. And started implementing some of those strategies in our um, youth and adult programs, in our, um, in our uh, educational conferences, and teaching them to the, um, the volunteers who were working there. And boy, we had far we had fewer behavior issues. Um, taking those strategies and incorporating them in um, training up our counselors at our camps, and um, watching how very effective they are, and and being able to see um, how people can learn how to do these strategies all on their own, and then um, and then and then really seeing how effective they are. So that, and it was, and it just, it's so exciting when you see parents learning something that uh, works for their kid. Maybe not every time, but works in the long run. It's very exciting, very powerful. So I, I was hooked on the behavioral aspects more than, than anything else. And in, in, because sometimes I think that's the most difficult challenge for families is managing the behavior aspects of the syndrome. The other medical aspects are, uh, can be very challenging, but, but um, we, I think we have some interventions and, and we have treatments and, and at least knowledge about what to do. But the behavior pieces are very elusive. Yeah. Well, so my daughter, Freya, is seven and a half. And, you know, I remember when she was younger, it was all about the medical issues and things that were coming up. And now I don't even really, that's not really an issue for us too much anymore, but the, she's at an age where, you know, the behavior stuff is starting to come out. And so I got to go to your conference. That was the first conference that I've gone to for um, any PWS. And I was just so thrilled to be there and just grateful to have that information. I mean, I learned, so this was the behavior management mm -hmm. uh, conference. Um, and uh, down in Davis or outside of Davis, but I I just, I, I learned so much. And it's funny because as I was listening to it, you know, especially when you were talking about empathy, which we'll get to, um, just realizing 
I mean, what a basic skill we should all just have in general for everybody, <laughs> you know, but, um, and then to, you know, start, start implementing some of this stuff in my own life with Freya and seeing how, how well it does work. And um, so well, that's, that's good to hear. Yeah, that is good to hear. And, and you're absolutely right that so much of what especially empathy but the other pieces that we we kind of focus on to help people um they're not just for people with prader willi syndrome we hear it <laughs> all the time but if it, it, that you know how it wouldn't it be wonderful if we kind of incorporated a lot of these things that we'll be talking about with everybody with a lot of people with developmental disabilities or the rest of our kids who have you know no disability necessarily whatsoever right um, be really nice um if but the thing is is if we if we don't incorporate a lot of these strategies with people with prader willi syndrome then then we we get into um you know much much more difficult situations right well so why don't we go ahead and talk about some of the um kind of the main challenging behaviors of PWS anxiety is such a big part of it and that fuels a lot of the behavior stuff but um, you you brought up a lot in the in the conference and it's also on the PWCF website uh, I have a list here that I could read of, of some challenging behaviors so some of the main ones that I wrote down uh, people with PWS tend to be concrete thinkers so they have slow processing Poor short-term memory, but good long-term memory. They have oppositional thinking, uh, low tolerance to frustration, cognitive inflexibility, impulsivity, the need to be seen as right or competent, uh, the need for external motivation, and obsessive compulsive tendencies, the excessive talking and repeating questions. Um, so those are the some of the main uh, issues that I, that I pulled out of the literature and of the conference. And of those, are there, are there ones that you see more often in families or, or in people with PWS? Are, are there some that are just kind of really, really kind of key components to this syndrome? Yeah, there are some that I see more frequently. And, 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 and you know, and we'll just kind of remind everybody too that this syndrome is one of its uniquenesses is that it is such a wide spectrum of symptoms that they vary from person to person sometimes very widely even within the same subtype so that not everybody is going to have all of these symptoms certainly and not everybody is going to have them to the degree as other people will have them so um and no symptom is dependent upon any other symptom. You know, so if you have a high degree of hyperphagia or food drive, that doesn't mean you're going to have a high degree of any of the other symptoms. It's just um, very, very unique to that individual person. But some of the things I see universally just about are one, that underlying anxiety. And a lot of people's anxiety is very focused or attached to obtaining food or accessing food. Um, so we can't, we've got to remember that, that food anxiety is 
very much present in almost everyone. But, and it, and it doesn't have to be very, sometimes it's very unclear that that's where the anxiety is attached. Um, so, it, it, but we have to kind of remember that, that that is very much connected. The other, the other thing is anxiety doesn't have to be necessarily attached only to food. I see many people that have high levels of anxiety about everything, not necessarily food or only related to food. Right. Um, so that whatever we do, we really have to remember that what we're seeing is probably connected to anxiety. And if we can try to figure out how to reduce this person's anxiety in the moment, then we may be trying to, you know, circumventing some kind of an unwanted behavior in the future down the line. Mm -hmm. a lot of, the other thing is, is that a lot of families um, now lock their food at the beginning or they, so they may not necessarily see a lot of food-related anxiety at home, which is great. Um, but they may not remember that uh, outside the, the, the home setting, if people aren't restricting access to food with locks or with supervision, that there may be lots of anxiety there that somebody's not thinking um, is necessarily food-related anxiety because they don't see it at home. So they're not connecting it necessarily. We see that a lot of times in a school setting and in a work setting. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I see lots of times is um, the oppositional behavior, mm -hmm. the oppositional thinking that fuels behavior. Almost everybody I know with the syndrome or I've had contact with with the syndrome has some degree of oppositionalism right? So if you say black, they say white. If you say purple, they'll say brown. <laughs> if you say stop, they'll say go. If you say go, they'll say stop almost automatically. Um, and so, you know, creating strategies around that, um, easy things to just keep in mind, like not asking yes or no questions. Not asking, do you want to put your shoes on now? Because the oppositional part of the brain and will automatically say no, even if they wanted to put their shoes on right now. So not asking um, yes or no questions, but always giving them an opportunity to have, pick from two choices that would be really good for you. Do you want to put your shoes on in three minutes or five minutes? Do you want to put your shoes on before the commercial or during the show? So that it serves two purposes. One, it goes around that oppositional brain. And two, it gives a greater sense of control, which reduces anxiety. The other thing I see often is a high need to be right. A high need to not be wrong. And that will often lead to arguments um, because the individual, even if you're not saying with the words, you're wrong, um, anything you say that gives them the experience of being wrong will lead potentially to an argument or a defensive stance. Yes, I have seen that with Freya. And the challenging thing for us is that Freya has a little sister who is 16 months younger. And 
sometimes it's just really challenging to kind of navigate that situation in a way that um, is understanding of what Freya is, you know, capable of. I don't know if that's the right term, but, you know, what her brain can can understand or is willing to understand, but then to also be fair and, and just to Rona, my younger daughter, and those are very frustrating moments when they're when they're kind of battling and it's you know like knowing how to like things that I could just let go or that I could say okay Freya but then you know here's my younger daughter that's like well but no that's not how it is I don't know I, I can't yes. give a specific example but it is really challenging at well, times. I can well imagine it's really challenging because you you mentioned two things. You mentioned the idea of fairness to your younger daughter. Well, of course, fairness. You, you want to be fair to everybody. To you know, it, it's very important to kids that there's fairness. It's extraordinarily important to kids with Prader-Willi syndrome to that there's fairness. Right. And how do and, and if there's if there's a perception of, well, if I say to my younger daughter, you know, we got to, or if I say to my older daughter, you've got to let that go. You got to be fair. Um, that's probably going to be problematic to your older daughter. If you say you got to let that go because we have to be fair and I'm not uh, to your younger daughter, it's here we go again. We're, you know, kind of letting Freya get what she needs or wants. And what about my needs and wants? Right. I didn't capture your, your scenario very well there, but it's very challenging with siblings. And a lot of times we parents will talk about um, this idea of how do I, um, how do I not discipline my child with Prader-Willi syndrome because that's not really gonna, not, not discipline, how do I punish in, or discipline in a different way, not punish. How do I discipline in a way that's good for her, but not let the other kids think that they can get away with everything? Or how do I discipline my other kids, but discipline my child with Prader-Willi syndrome differently and not let my other kids see or think that I'm letting my, the kid with the syndrome, their sibling, get away with everything? Right. I, <laughs> yeah. Well, because I have an older daughter too, who's 14. She'll, she's almost 15. And sometimes that comes up and she'll say, you know, mom, are you going to let her get away with this? And, or whatever. And, uh, you know, just kind of questioning my tactics with Freya. And then, um, so then I get frustrated and I, and I, I wrote up 10 pages of notes after your conference and I emailed it to her at one point. And, I, and so I just say, did you read those notes yet? Because if you haven't read those notes and you don't understand what I'm, what I'm trying to work with here. So it, it is just all around, but I mean, it's not always frustrating, but when those things come up, that is the issue that the fairness and the, and treating everybody with fairness, but you can't treat them the same necessarily. That's exactly it, Anne. It is, it is very important that um, parents know that fairness doesn't equal the same. It's fairness for that person at that time, at that age, at that developmental, developmental stage of their life. That's what's fair to that person. But it's not in comparison and it, to anybody else. And it's never going to be the same as everybody else. That's not what fairness is about. But um, that is extremely challenging in the moment. 
and very important to have those conversations like you're having with your older daughter, at least, and maybe your younger daughter, to kind of let them know that um, the reason that you see me disciplining or talking to your sisters differently is because that's what's fair to them. That's what's necessary for them. It's going to be very different for you because you're older or you're younger or you're in a different space and time or you can understand more or you can't understand as much, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's what's fair to you. Um, it's what's best for you, not in comparison or being the same. And one of the things that came from one of the series of conferences that we did was how challenging it is for siblings to, um, in, in just this instance or this example that you've, you've used, to see the child with Prader-Willi syndrome being disciplined or managed differently. How much resentment that can bring up. Um, and, um, and we're going to be putting together, so stay tuned, a behavior management conference that's just focused on siblings' understanding of the syndrome um, so that wow. they can have better interactions with their siblings. So we're going to try to empower siblings and give them some tools, you know, at whatever developmental stage they're, they're at, that will help them interact better getting into less squabbles um oh that's awesome yay i will definitely be looking out for that one yeah yeah that's fantastic so the excessive talking and repeating questions that's one that freya does a lot and i know that yeah. that comes from anxiety of what's next you know needing to know like okay where are we going after this what are we doing now and i think that's one that a lot of people kind of deal with yeah, there's, I think, I think it's uh, that excessive talking is, uh, uh, can be the same as the excessive asking questions over and over and over again. Um, I also, and definitely a function of anxiety, probably, um, and almost always, but I also think it's a function of a nonverbal learning disability, that I think a lot of our kids talk out loud, just a stream of conversation out loud um, for some other reasons, or ask question after question after question for other reasons in addition to probably the underlying anxiety. They need to know what happens next. They need to know so that they can be prepared for it. And it's that nonverbal learning disability where I, I think outside my head which is sometimes hard to wrap your head around, right? How do you think outside your head? But when that thinking happens as I'm talking, that I don't really think unless I'm speaking it out loud. Usually when we think, we're thinking thoughts in our head and they're not coming out of our mouths. But I think that many kids with the syndrome and adults with the syndrome think with their words. It's a steady stream of the thoughts is what you're hearing. And um, whether it's because of lack of impulse control and that they're just saying whatever it is that comes to mind, or there is truly a nonverbal learning disability where um, that's just a symptom of that disorder, um, that's, that what, that's what we may be seeing. Yeah. And so to try to put, um, um, and for the anxiety-based question after question after question, um, 
uh, it, it's that is sometimes some of the most challenging um, because you want to reduce their anxiety, but you also don't want to keep letting it go on and on and on and on because that doesn't reduce anxiety. That just makes anxiety worse. Yeah. It's very challenging. Um, there are some medications, if you go the medication route, that can be helpful um, to reduce some of that um, perseverating. But, you know, psychotropic medications are very challenging in and of themselves. And it's a, that's a whole nother route. Right. Well, I really appreciate the clarification. I had I had never heard of the nonverbal learning disability until your conference, and I was actually really fascinated by that. And I think it makes total sense. I just wanted to clarify that nonverbal learning disability is is there's a whole host of, uh, you know, you can Google it and find some really nice sites for nonverbal learning disability. But it's it is um, it's a, it's a disorder in and of itself that I think is probably um, underdiagnosed in people with the syndrome. And then as far as the repeating questions, I find that, well, just like just yesterday, uh, Freya, or the last couple of days, my mother-in-law was flying into town and Freya just kept asking me over and over again, when is she getting here? And I kept answering and, you know, and then I'll say, well, did I answer that already? And she'll say, yeah. And then, and then she won't ask again for a little bit. And then she was just so excited. She kept asking. And so finally I said, why don't we write this down? So then she wrote down the, you know, I told her what to write and she wrote down her, the answer so that she had it there on the paper. And that seemed to help stop the questions for a while. So that was. Excellent. Um, yeah. So that she had that concrete, right? You, you mentioned earlier that, that concrete thinking. She had a tangible piece of paper in her hand that answered that question. She didn't have to hold it in her mind. She had a concrete, tangible thing that reminded her, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna see grandma. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Can we get into, I think it's important to talk about the meltdown, the tantrums, and how, how we can go about um, managing those. So I know that um, in one of, the, one of the resources from PWCF, there is kind of this breakdown of the, of the emotional behavior and how, um, you know, when they start getting agitated, you can use empathy in the beginning, you know, if they're still responsive. And do you know the, what I'm talking about? The, um... Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. do you, can we talk about that for a minute? Do you, can you kind of walk us through like um, what, uh, what it looks like when they're building up to a meltdown? Yeah. So I want to even kind of come back because it, back in time earlier, when, because there are no magic there really are no magic words to stop a meltdown in its tracks. The only ones that I know they even come close is empathy, which we'll talk about in a minute. But if we don't do some of the basic things and set it up right, then no matter what we do, the anxiety of a situation or the, the way the brain is, is primed to respond 
um, will just happen. We, we can't really stop it. So that in the very beginning of as early in life as we can do it and as early in, in learning about the importance of doing it that we start to implement that routines and strategies to reduce anxiety, routines, I'm sorry, routines and structure and, and, and all of the things that we put in place at home and in the environment, whether it's school or work, to reduce anxiety. So the individual knows what's gonna happen today, what am I gonna do, all of this routine, factoring in when is food gonna be served and what am I gonna have about what time and all. All of those things must be in place every single day day after day after day because that reduces anxiety and if we have less anxiety then we have a little bit more brain power to respond to things that come up out of the blue we have a little bit more reserve maybe to to be a little bit more flexible but if we're not knowing what's going to go on from moment to moment or day to day or things can change and we didn't get a warning about them then uh, we're 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 just unable to have any excess um, brain power to manage anything that comes up out of the blue. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense, and that's actually one of my questions that I had from the conference because I'm really interested in this because I will say that when I first got the diagnosis and started learning about it, that that was one of the biggest concerns of mine was that you know this this really rigid structure because we are not a family that really likes to work under a structure like that. You know, I mean, every family is different. And I just, I've been thinking about that. I wonder like how much of her anxiety stems from, I mean, she's in school, so she has a pretty, you know, like their structure there. And then we have, you know, dinner time and bedtime. We have our routines, but there's still quite a bit of openness, I feel like, to our life that I just think for now she's doing okay with, but I'm always kind of on the lookout for that. Yeah, you bring up the million dollar question. It really is a very good question. Um, and one that I think a lot of parents is early, early on. Um, I've had m multiple conversations with young parents about, you know, that, that we hear the symptom, one of the symptoms is inflexibility, that people with the syndrome can't be flexible. And so the way that we believe as a parent that we can help teach flexibility, I mean, being more flexible, teach flexibility skills, is to not be so structured and give so much, you know, rigidity in our own schedules, that that will help our kids not be rigid and in their own brains, right? Uh -huh. That if we have a structure and routine at home that really doesn't vary, then aren't we creating kids who are inflexible? And it's actually the opposite. Every kid is different. Some kids will have lots more ability to be flexible. Some kids can't be flexible. Some kids do really well with very, you know, in, with huge changes in variation of routine every day. Some kids can't 
even go on an errand after school. They have to go home first and have their whatever they do, whatever the routine is. And mm. then, then they can go on. Like they can't even like deviate once to just stop on the way home and do an errand, right? Mm. Um, so everybody's different. Um, but I will say that children in general um, thrive on routine and, and structure. We do, we're not talking about um, a rigidness ourselves to structure because that's not good for anybody. What we're talking about is, um, I kind of would liken it to um, a, a feeding schedule when, we're, when we have a baby, right? Baby wakes up every two and a half to three hours to feed. Now, babies with Prader-Willi syndrome don't wake up on their own, so generally. So we will waken them and feed every three hours, right? So we're imposing that structure so that that baby knows somewhere in their being, every three hours, I'm gonna have something to eat. Or no matter what the time frame is, I will be taken care of to eat. Right. Right. When we go to school, we know the tardy bell rings at such and time. Uh, we know we have our first class. Then, then we go to our next class. Then we have our lunch, our, our snack break. Then we go to another class. Right. The, the flow of the day is that. Um, so we're not talking about the, the structure of somebody with Prader-Willi syndrome must be, um, you, I'm going to wake you up at 8.03 every morning. I'm going to give you your snack at 11.57. <laughs> you know, we're not talking about that. As a matter of fact, we really try to stay away from time so right. that the individual with the syndrome doesn't fixate on or get stuck on, well, it's 12 o'clock, I need my lunch right now. Uh -huh. well, it's really the flow of the day is after this, then we'll have your lunch, right? Like at school, after English, then you have lunch, right? Yeah. It's a little bit different at school because they really are uh, stuck on a particular time. But it's creating a, a, a structure and a routine for somebody with a syndrome so that they don't necessarily have to worry what is or, or wonder or think about or worry really what's coming up next i already know it uh-huh so maybe even you know if, if plans do change giving them enough time to prepare for that or starting the day with okay so today you know we're going to so-and-so's house for dinner instead of being at home exactly yeah Exactly. And I think that the more root, I've seen this over and over again, the more structure and routine we can kind of build in early in, in childhood, as early as possible, right? Before we go to bed, we brush our teeth, we wash our face, and we, you know, we do get our jam. We just take care of those things before we go to bed. We don't even think about it. When we get up in the morning, the first thing we do is brush our teeth, wash your face, and get dressed, and then come down for breakfast, or whatever your routine is, right? We don't have to think about it. But if, if some nights we're reminded we've got to brush our teeth, but other nights, oh, it's not, a, it's, it's not important, just go to bed, um, then we're not building structure and routine. So the individual may be somewhere in that mind, well, is today a brush teeth night or not? Am I going to brush my teeth or not? But if we take away some of that thinking about it then uh, and, and build in as much routine and schedule as possible 
in, in earlier years. I think what we may have are kids who are able to be more flexible later in life. They may be better able for those kids who have that ability, some, right? Some, some people just, by their biochemistry isn't gonna allow it. But for those who can be more flexible, go with the flow, um, I think the only way to have that to happen is um, by building in routine and schedule uh, early on. Uh-huh. Yeah, kind of that gives them a sense of security and like a good solid foundation that the, they can then feel safe to explore from maybe, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. It, structure and routine isn't environment dependent, right? You can, as long as your flow of things stays the same in whatever environment you're in. Yeah. Whether you're camping, whether you're, um, you know, on vacation, um, that the first thing in the morning that we do generally is this. And right. maybe when we're on vacation, that's not what we do, but every, you know, but then that's a new routine, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay. So then you yeah. were, so we were talking about the ways to routine and structure yes. being one of the main ways to reduce anxiety. Yeah, so that's kind of the bottom line, and, and there are lots and lots of places and ways to, to build that in. But let's say now we've got that building block, and now we have a child who is, um, uh, let's, you know, one of the real common ones is we're going to a store, and we're going to run some errands uh, with mom and, or dad, and we see uh, something in the store that we really want, whether it's a toy or food, and now we're gearing pardon me, we're, we're gearing up towards having a temper tantrum, <laughs> right? Yeah. So we'll, we'll use that as um, a, a kind of a description of, of how does one do empathy? So because empathy is, is a, we all think we know what the word means, but and, and we may, but we don't necessarily know how to show it. And we certainly may not know how to show it to somebody with Prader-Willi syndrome. So at its very, very, very basic form, empathy is in some way letting the other person know you see their perspective, you understand what they're saying, you understand it. So empathy is telling the individual in some way you understand what they're up in this case upset about it is not agreeing with the individual's upsetness it is simply understanding so in its very basic form it's it may be simply repeating back what the individual is saying mm -hmm. i want this toy oh okay you want this toy yes i want this toy yep that is a you want that toy and then going beyond, right? That is a very cool toy. And you love, I'll just stay with little kid stuff. You love Power Rangers. You love Little Mermaid or what's the new one? Frozen person. <laughs> uh, Elsa and Anna, yeah. Elsa, there you go. Um, you love that. Oh, and she is just gorgeous. And he, they, you know, Power Rangers, they're just so strong. So you're going with what that individual's experience is. And as soon as they understand, oh, you totally get how important this is, now you can start to come back to um, the, that individual's, it, it, that, the, the 
the emotion attached is going to reduce a little bit. It just happens. And so then, then you're going to be letting them know, you know, I know you want that toy. But remember, when we came in, we said this was just an errands day. We were not going to be getting a toy. And you really like that toy. So we're coming back to how we prepped them in the beginning. Right? We're going to go into the store. We're giving them that routine and structure. Today is just a, a getting some errands done. We're not going to be getting a toy. But when you show me a toy, I'm going to say, that's really cool. But we're going to be putting that back. Right? We did all that before we went into the store. Okay. Even if we had no clue that they were going to find something. But we just prepped it. Right. Then when they say, I want this toy, I want this toy, uh, we're going to be giving that lots and lots of their perception of, yep, you really want that toy. That is so cool. That is the coolest toy I've ever seen. If we don't buy it now, they'll run out. Oh my gosh, you're very, very concerned that if we don't buy this toy now, they won't have any more and you'll never have it for the rest of your life. That would be horrible. That would be terrible always going with their emotion and their experience. Not giving in, but always going with their emotion and their experience. Okay, honey, now it's time to put that toy back. If it doesn't work, then you stay right there in that moment, just empathizing. What a, and don't feel afraid ever that by saying something really, really, that it's horrible, that they, this is the worst thing to happen to them, um, that life will be wrecked forever. Don't think when you say those things, you're going to make it worse. You're not. What you'll be doing is really, really driving home that you understand how terrible this is for them that they can't come home with an Elsa figurine. Yeah. Yep. And if we try to rush the process, it makes it worse. Well, one of the things that really struck me when you were talking about at the conference was that when we empathize with them and let them know that we understand where they're coming from then they it takes away their need to make sure that we understand yes so they don't have to get louder they don't have to get more explosive because they see already we understand so they don't have to try to make us understand that's right that the more we try to give them reasons why we can't do what they want, the more they'll loudler, loudler, <laughs> more loudly, <laughs> try to tell us why we're wrong, they're right, they should have this, this toy because, right? But if we get into that back and forth about why I said no, why we can't today, then, then now we're in a power struggle and it will only increase the volume of their telling us why they're right. Now, they may, now the other piece that's important is that we don't give in and we don't have a history of giving in or we change the history now because most of the time people turn up the volume to get, the only reason they're turning up the volume is to get you to do what they want you to do. Otherwise, they wouldn't be turning up the volume. Right. So they're turning up the volume to yell at you to get you to buy them that toy. If you buy them that toy, then you've just taught them all they need to do next time is turn up the volume louder. 
So as you're giving lots and lots of empathy, I know you love this toy. She is really cool. I really like her. And remember, we aren't coming today to buy, buy that toy. We're just going to be leaving. And if, you're, if you change up your mind and buy that toy in the midst of, an, of the argument, then you're sunk. You're, you're, you're not going to get out of the cycle of, of temper tantruming for things. But if you sit with the how terrible, how sad, we'd much rather have somebody crying, um, no matter what the age, um, crying rather than becoming, you know, aggressively, uh, verbally aggressive or physically aggressive. Um, just sit with the crying. I'm really sorry. This is terrible. I know it's hard. And then, eventually, um, and you know, eventually is dependent upon the individual's developmental functioning and it's dependent upon history of interactions where they get upset and um, can't get what they want this time the more they um, have an experience of empathy and not being given into the shorter and shorter the episodes of um, of meltdown or, or temper tantrum occur the other thing we hear often, because we talk about not giving in, right? We just can't give in. And it's really hard, especially sometimes for, um, if we haven't been implementing a lot of these strategies early in life, the harder, uh, the longer we've kind of given in a little bit or, um, you know, kind of acquiesced to temper tantrums, the harder it is to change that behavior. It's very, very, very hard. It can certainly be done, but sometimes behavior gets a whole lot worse before it gets better. Um, it, it, it's just very difficult. But a lot of times people will say, so how do I stay calm? How do I, how can we not feel totally embarrassed when, you know, it's easy when a two-year-old's having a temper tantrum sometimes, you know, when people walk by and give you looks like you're the horriblest parent <laughs> or, you know, letting your two-year-old temper tantrum like that and speak to you that way. It gets really hard when you have a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 30-year-old yelling in a store or a restaurant and berating you in a store or a restaurant. And it's really hard as a parent to give empathy, to stay calm, to not give in just to you know get the situation calm in this moment. It's really hard. Yeah, I had that experience recently. Freya started having um, a bit of a tantrum in front of her class. Yeah, I, I started with empathy. I was doing good, but it just wasn't working yet. Yeah, I noticed that all the kids were looking at me and then I just started getting really frustrated and angry. And then it just kind of, you know, <laughs> it went downhill from there. Yeah, yeah it did. <laughs> well, I, I know exactly that feeling. And, you know, some days um, I can have lots of patience and I can, you know, tolerate being uh, having something uh, you know, you know, yelled at, you're the worst mom in the world. Some days I have lots of patience. Some days I have none. I have no tolerance. I can't do it. And I will lose it. You know, I said, stop. <laughs> and, and that doesn't make it better. It makes it worse in the moment. So, but you know, it's, it's really, really hard. 
and that's what we have to always remind ourselves is it, this is, there are no magic words and there's no magic formula. Um, it's just more times than not. The goal is more times than not, we're gonna use empathy. We're gonna get out of a, of a power struggle, of a right-wrong battle. We're gonna say more often than not, you know what, honey, you might be right, if it's appropriate to say that. Um, then, and you're, then, and, and get out of a temper tantrum or power, uh, or a meltdown sooner, more times than not. Right. That's really the goal. Yeah. And I appreciated that in the conference, you gave us like a list of phrases that we could use for empathy. And the one that I use, and I feel like this takes the least, like if I'm, if I'm still frustrated with what she's saying, I can still at least say, Freya, I hear you. Like, yeah. And that's it. I'm not committing to anything. I'm just acknowledging I hear you. And yeah. sometimes that's all it takes. That's all she yeah. needs. And so I really appreciated that part of it. <laughs> Yeah, oh, good. You know, and, and that's a good thing to, to note because what works for Freya, you know, Freya, I hear you. I hear you. May not work with another kid who says, yeah, you hear me, but you're not doing what I want you to do. Right. <laughs> for Freya, that works well because of your relationship with her. And so, you know, what, uh, that's what I really want to, to drive home is that there are some phrases that will be very helpful right? You might be right. I hear you. I understand. You're really upset. Um, you want X, Y, Z. Um, hit, stay with what works for you, you know, and, and add on to it. But just know that not everything works for everybody. Right. And if it doesn't work, don't, you know, give it up. Just move on to the next one. Well, and it might not work for every situation either. Yes, that's right. That's right. So that in this instance of, you know, I want you to buy me the, uh, the Elsa doll, um, uh, Freya, I hear you. I hear you. And I'm not going to buy you the Elsa doll. And how disappointing that is. Uh-huh. How disappointing to get to the emotion of it. How very sad. How very disappointing. You know, one of the things that um, at our camp, um, we have like, you know, anywhere between 50 and 75 people with Prader-Willi syndrome six days in a row um, at camp. And so you, you know, maybe imagine some of the challenges that we have um, moment to moment to moment. And one of the biggest things we find that helps is this experience of, or this expression of empathy in whatever form it takes. Um, using phrases that get to the heart of what are they, what's the individual with the syndrome feeling get right to the heart of it. And I'm constantly being made fun of by the other counselors because I'm walking around all the time saying, when somebody says, oh, here's a problem over here, and we come over and the individual with the syndrome is lamenting about what terrible thing has just happened. And I will say often, what a bummer. What a bummer. Oh, that's just, a that's awful. And it just brings the emotion down right away. They know right away, they don't have to yell at me to get me to understand what horrible thing has just happened because I've come right out of the box and said, this is terrible, what a bummer, how horrible. And it just brings it down, the emotion. It brings the emotional parts down. And that's what we want. We wanna bring the emotional reactivity down 
because that means the individual is thinking more. They're utilizing their brain more. They're not acting from emotional pieces of themselves. They're acting from the, the intellectual pieces of themselves. And that's where we want to go so that they can then help problem solve for themselves, right? Because then if, they're, if you're, you can get to the, we're not going to buy Elsa today, honey. We, we just, we're not going to buy Elsa today. We already know that, right? Then, then once the emotion is down, now you can work to problem solve with the individual. Well, when can we come back to buy Elsa? How can we get this wonderful figurine that you want, right? Again, not problem solving for them, but helping them figure out what options they propose. We can, so that you want to get them to come back to with something like, well, maybe we can come back tomorrow and get Elsa. Or maybe I can help you unload the dishwasher and that will help me earn some money to get Elsa. Something that they're coming up with from a place of thinking rather than emotional reactivity. Right. And I like that in the conference you clarified uh, not to use but, try to use and. Yep. Yes. Because, I mean, there's, there, boy, there's a lot we didn't hit on, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> You know, the managing the disappointment, to, to rephrase things so that you're not saying no. We, the park is closed, and so, and so we're not able to go to the park today. When do you think we'll be able to come back to the park? Instead of the park is closed, uh, so we can't go to the park today. Um, so, no, we can't go, which is a huge disappointment. Anything that's a disappointment it can lead to a, a potentially to a behavior problem. Uh -huh. yeah. Um, yeah, but tends to, when you put a but in somewhere, um, I love you, but <laughs> <laughs> your behavior is bothering me right now, right? That yeah. your behavior is bothering me right now is what sticks in the head. The I love you is completely negated by the but. So I love you and your behavior is really bothering me right now is a, to the brain, a much, much easier thing to take in and, and hear and yeah. stay with the whole message, but just kind of gets rid of anything else that came before it. Isn't that amazing? It's just one tiny little word, but it can do so much. <laughs> well, you're right. And for people with Prader-Willi syndrome, more than any other disability that I know of, um, even for individuals who um, you know, are even more cognitively challenged, words and phrases of words have very huge meaning, significance. So we have to be very careful with the words we choose to use. I am noticing that with Brea. Like I'll hear that she'll get upset and she'll say, you said, even if I, you know, like I, if I use the word stupid about something, but never, I mean, I don't ever use it about people, but like, oh, the stupid thing. You know, she'll say, you said stupid, like, that, you can't say that word. Like, she's so upset by the use of that word. And Yeah. So. Yep. That the context is less important than the words used themselves, because the context can get lost, because I don't have the ability to hold context. That's a very complex concept. 
-hmm. but I, but the words, again, those are, you know, not concrete, but a little bit more tangible. The words you use is what I'm going to hold on to. Yeah. You said yeah. never use the word stupid and there you just use right. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then what happens if our empathy is not working and they're still getting worked up? Yeah. So if empathy doesn't work, um, then really what you're, you're going to, because you're not going to be standing there over and over and over and over using empathy because now you're just making it worse, right? You're going to give empathetic responses and then you're going to sit next to just kind of parallel with the individual in their sadness and just keep them in the periphery of your eye and, um, and just let them be sad. Um, not interacting, not communicating, just sitting there and being with them. And hopefully that temper tantrum will fizzle out. It won't go to a full-blown meltdown. And then they'll get up and live with their disappointment and, and you know, go on their merry way and, and everything will be fine. <laughs> um, if it doesn't go that way, right? If you've utilized empathy in a brilliant manner and then it's just not working, then that's life that happens sometime and you will do everything you can to keep the individual safe while they're having a meltdown. A meltdown is qualitatively different than a behavior than a temper tantrum. Temper tantrum is purposeful behavior to get what I want. A meltdown is complete loss of ability to control my behavior because I'm so immersed in the feelings I'm feeling. And a meltdown is like a boulder rolling down a hill. You can't stop that boulder. You can't push it back up the hill. It just has to roll the rest of the way and settle and stop wherever it, it's gonna settle and stop. You just have to make sure that the path is clear so nobody's in the way and, and maybe getting hurt, physically hurt, um, or emotionally hurt, you know, get people out of a room maybe, if, or just keep the individual, because they're not going to move, um, you know, in a contained area or just contain them with your, you know, with yourself. Um, and that just means sitting next to the person or holding the person if, if it's safe to do so, um, just keeping them safe. Yeah, that was when when you, uh, for some reason, that one just like gets me emotionally. I mean, I haven't had that experience, but I know many families have and that it's, you know, it's obviously like definitely a potentiality. I mean, Fran's only seven and a half, but I mean, what a, you know, what a. Yes. I mean, just to get to that place where, you know, my, okay, my child is, you know, now I just have to keep them safe from themselves. Yeah, yeah. And by safe, um, I'm, I'm referring to sometimes kids will maybe bang their head on the ground or on a wall or maybe pull things down or throw things um, that are near them so that's not safe for them or safe for other people around. That, that's what I'm meaning about. Right, safe. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, thank yeah, you for clarifying. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Um, you know, and, and it, it gets more heartbreaking, the older individuals um, are too. Uh -huh. uh, I will say, 
Um, rarely have I ever, ever, ever met anybody with the syndrome who enjoys having a meltdown. It, it's beyond their control. And we have to remind ourselves that this is, it is unfortunately at this point in time, uh, a symptom of the syndrome. Um, it's not uh, bratty behavior. Um, certainly temper tantruming can be managed so that it doesn't become a tool they use, right, to uh -huh. get what they want. But a true meltdown is, is something that is outside of their control. They can't stop a meltdown any more than they could, um, you know, successfully hold their breath underwater for any long period of time. It just, it just, it's outside their control. And so they, they need more levels of compassion at just the moments when <laughs> we are not as anywhere near feeling compassionate. Yeah. Well, there's that like parenting meme or phrase about, you know, um, the more unlovable a child seems, the more they need love, or that's not exactly it, but it's, you know, kind of the more a kid is, is acting out, uh, you know, and like the harder it is to really enjoy them in that moment. That's the yeah. more, you know, they need the most love at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think your first um, rendition of that is very right on. Um, the more sometimes kids act out and are unlovable, the more, they need love. That's what you're seeing. So the more an individual with the syndrome is, um, is melting down, the more out of control they're feeling. And so the more control, and I don't like to use that word control, but the more um, structure and safety they need to feel and security they need to feel. Um, but not in that moment. In that moment, a, a meltdown, there's nothing you can do. Right. Nothing. Just keep them safe. Yeah. Well, and, and in the conference, we talked about kind of some phrases that, because um, this was a thing, you know, that when Freya does get upset, she seems to know how to separate herself. And she'll go to her room, she'll lay in her bed, or at school, there's, it's a Waldorf school, so they have a little tent zone, and she is learning how to go in there if she's getting upset. And the teacher knows, like, okay, she needs to be left alone. But um, before the conference, you know, Freya would get upset and, and stomp off to her room and lay in her bed crying. And I would go in there and try and rub her back and try and talk to her. And she would say, leave me alone. Or, you know, she would try and send me away. And my motherly instinct was to stay in comfort. And then after your conference, I realized that's actually, like, no, she's being very clear with leave me alone, get away. <laughs> like... I should get away. I should just give her space. And that definitely works better than trying to uh, talk her through stuff. Yeah. And it is a, it is a, a very different experience for, you know, people who are very nurturing. We want to, mothers and dads, we want to help make it better. We want to, you know, be tender and rub the back and, and talk it through. And for some kids, and at some times, that may be just what's needed. But at other times, um, the individual with the syndrome does need that alone time, a time to just come out of the feelings so that they can just 
think better, think more clearly. And I, I think a lot of people with this syndrome are very, very, very good self-advocates. And, and like Freya will tell you, leave me alone. And, and they're, not, they're not saying it for any other reason than that's exactly what they need. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there any way to, I mean, I mean, there's just so much information and I really appreciate your willingness to share and how you put it out there. And if anybody out there hasn't attended the behavior management conference, um, I'm not sure if you will be offering more. I assume you will at some point. We actually are. We have the next one scheduled in the San Francisco area. Um, oh, let me tell you, it's, um, we just finalized it. So I'll tell you the date, and then you can let everybody know to be on the lookout okay. for it. It's yeah. in September, on September 15th. It's a Sunday. Okay. And it will be in San Francisco. And I will, um, and the information will be posted on PWCF's website, pwcf.org. They can register there and we'll also, um, for any members, we'll be, um, you know, sending out lots of emails about it and an and a, um, invitation flyer. So okay. there'll be another one in San Francisco this year, and then there'll be another one in San Diego. So we're going to, you know, do two, both sides of the, um, uh, of the state pretty soon. Nice. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I think, any, you know, if anybody can get to it, absolutely give it, uh, you know try and make it because I learned I learned so much and I think I told you before I you know I, I printed up you know I typed up a bunch of notes and then I gave it to phrase teachers and I was going to send it out to our friends that interact with her and just you know I think there's a lot of really useful information there oh and, that's great that's great and and that's the whole point of this right to to get it out there so that life is easier for everybody that's the whole point Right. Yeah. People, we, you know, as hard as it is for us to, um, you know, experience the other side of a bad day with somebody with Prader-Willi syndrome, it's not enjoyable for them either. And so all of these tools and, and I mean, there's so many, many, many more we couldn't even touch on today. Um, they, they just make life easier for everybody. Yeah. Do you have like, is there like one piece of advice or like a way to distill all this down into like one hopeful piece of advice for families out there or is that a lot to ask <laughs> like that's let me to put you on the spot but um no you know um the more i i talk to families um and and get feedback from them about you know what kinds of things help and what kinds of things are immediately helpful. I'm really more focused on what kinds of things are immediately helpful. The more, pardon me, the more feedback I get of the empathy, the in the moment, um, you might be right. You, I understand. You're not wrong, honey. I understand that's what you want. What a bummer. This is terrible. This is awful. I'm so sorry you're feeling so bad. The empathy piece is so critically helpful in the moment that that's what I would leave, um, I, would, I think I would leave you with, is, is practice true empathy, which is very short in and out words, not a lot of words, just in and out 
focusing on what is the other person's experience and yeah. reflecting that back to them, giving that back to them.